sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love, the government hug the government love, the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University, and I'm joined today by Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Fact Odom, Jay Carson. Hey, Jay. Hey, Mike. How are you doing this morning? I, well, I can't complain. How about yourself? I am doing okay. And you know, before we get started with this week's show, first off, I want to give a quick shout out to our newest Patreon supporters, Joe, Kat, and Jessica. And thank you so much for supporting the show. But also, I've got some news about really a pretty big change to the format and delivery of the politics guy. So even if you normally fast forward past the housekeeping stuff, you'll want to hear this. For a while now, it'll be good. Yeah, it's going to be good. You know, because for a while now, what we've been doing is producing four separate shows each week. And that's a lot for us to manage. And it really began to feel like we weren't going as deep as we'd like sometimes because of all the things we were trying to do every week. And you've told us that what you value most about the politics, guys, is in depth bipartisan discussion. And so we've retooled things, and that's what we're going to give you more of under our new format. Another reason we're changing our format is honestly financial. We haven't found a sustainable financial model for the show. And while the occasional ad does help, we won't do ads for just anyone, which really limits us. And I'd rather spend my time working on making the show as good as possible for you as opposed to running around trying to find commercial sponsors. Because where we stand now, 97.8% of the people who listen to the show on a regular basis aren't supporters. And if we can get that to even 90%, we would be set. But to do that, we need to make a more compelling case for you to support the show. And we think we've done that. So here's our new model. The main weekend show, will that's what you're listening to now, will always be freely available to everyone. That's not changing. And we also plan to keep on doing interviews with a new one dropping every, oh, six to eight weeks or so. Those will also be available to everyone. And we'll still be doing full-length midweek episodes every week, but those will be exclusively for our Patreon supporters. And these shows are going to be a mix of in-depth commentary on listener questions, and Jay and I are going to be doing one of those this week, discussion of important long-read politics and policy articles, and that's also something Jay and I are going to be doing this week, an ongoing series of conversations based on my upcoming book, Reforming Democracy, as well as other book discussions where Jay and I will take a few chapters at a time from something important and good and you know, letting everyone know beforehand what we'll be talking about so you can read along with us if you want, and we can even include your thoughts and questions as part of the show. Now, to make all this happen, we've changed and simplified our support levels on Patreon. By far, our most popular support level is the $5 fans level. And that's our new base, and it's going to get you ad-free shows and our new and improved midweek episode. Our Insiders $10 level gets you all that, plus an invite to our Politics Guys Slack group, where you can go behind the scenes and be part of the process of deciding on which stories we cover, as well as getting the inside scoop on what's going on with the podcast and some of our ideas for the future. So this really makes you part of the team that has a real impact on setting the course of the podcast. Then we have sustainers at $20 and that's everything at the below level. Plus 
your choice of a politics guy's mug or tote bag and a signed copy of my book, Reforming Democracy, when it comes out next year. And then finally, we have our executive producers at $50. Now, there are a very limited number of slots for this. We only have one opening at present, and that's all the other stuff. Plus, you're an executive producer on the show, which means you're mentioned in our closing credits. We consult with you on a regular basis about the show because you are literally a part of that core team that's setting the mission of the podcast. And executive producers also get invited to our Skype or Google Hangout calls, uh, once or twice a year to talk about the show. We've done a few in the past, and we, are, we plan on doing more in the future. Now, one more very important thing. We are not going to shut out anyone because of financial issues. So if you can't afford to support the show, or if you're a current supporter at below the $5 level and you're not able to move up to that $5 or above level, just email me at mikeatpoliticsguys.com, and I will set you up with access to our midweek show. We're really excited about these changes because we think that they focus us even more on what matters most to you, while at the same time helping to secure the financial future of the politics guys. So to become a supporter of the show or just find out more, go to patreon.com slash politics guys. Thanks so much. Okay, with that, Jay, we can move on to our top story of the week. What's that? Well, that's the, I guess I'll call it the growing concern about the independence or perception of the independence of the Justice Department. Now, for a while, many people on the left have become, I would say, increasingly convinced that Attorney General William Barr is allowing the Justice Department to be bent to President Trump's will. I mean, there was Barr's summary of the Mueller report, which some people, including Robert Mueller, felt to be inaccurate and unfair to a certain extent. Then last week, Barr announces that all sensitive political investigations will have to be cleared by him personally. And now the latest issue involves, of course, the sentencing recommendation for very ardent Trump supporter Roger Stone, who was convicted of obstruction of justice, making false statements and witness tampering in the Mueller investigation. And so to kind of give everyone the summary, on Monday, the four lead U.S. prosecutors on the Stone case signed on to a sentencing recommendation of seven to nine years. Following this, President Trump tweeted about what a miscarriage of justice it was, after which top Justice Department officials called, uh, called the recommendation excessive, leading to all four of the prosecutors withdrawing from the case. Now, Attorney General Barr denied any contact or influence from the president or anyone else. And he said in an interview, I'm not going to be bullied or influenced by anybody. And I think it's time to stop tweeting about Department of Justice criminal cases because it makes it impossible for me to do my job and to assure the courts and the prosecutors and the department that we're doing our work with integrity. And Barr also said that he cannot do my job here at the department with a constant background commentary that undercuts me. Now, this was followed by President Trump tweeting Barr's comment about the president never asking him to do anything in the criminal case, to which President Trump added, this doesn't mean that I do not have, as president, the legal right to do so, but I have so far chosen not to, exclamation point. So there's a lot there, Jay. Uh, what do you make of it? Well, I would say, uh, you know, Mike, from, from our conversations for quite a while, I am a uh, big fan of, of, of Barr. And uh, this, in, in some respects, uh, makes me even a bigger fan. 
Um, the, the 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 part you didn't mention is, and oh, you alluded to it, but uh, Barr's position is that the sentence was um, uh, over overstated, uh, and that the Justice Department was in the works of of um, changing that recommendation uh, before the president tweeted. Um, now there's no way to, to get absolute proof of that, um, but I, I think we could take him at his word in that if you look at, at the, the sentence objectively. Seven to nine years uh, for what Stone is convicted of uh, is uh, on the the very high end of of what the sentencing range would be. And and again, criminal sentencing um, for people who don't understand it, it's really in the federal system. There's this whole big rubric called federal sentencing guidelines. And what you have to do is is you're, there's like a level of of the offense, and then you look at these these other factors that can add points or reduce points, and there's a big chart you look at, um, and and then you can deviate upwards or downwards from that sentence. Um, and there's a whole complex kind of process, and and you know honestly math sort of sort of involved in this, and um, uh, you know, he he. This, as I understand, the sentence would have been within the guideline ranges, but it would have been the high end. Um, uh, and uh, he, the Justice Department, would have been uh, within its rights to to seek something less or not make a recommendation. The other thing that you can do is you just hand it over to the judge, and the judge uh, makes uh, his or her own call uh, based on the sentencing guidelines and and what they found at trial. So, you know, with with all that. Um, yeah, I guess the, if the case is that uh, Trump is interfering with Barr, let's let's assume the, the worst, right? Well, that, let's can can we start by assuming the best? Because it seems to me oh. that that the most positive spin is that this is an example of incompetence. I mean, because when um, you have when you have no, let me let me just make this. This to me is the best possible case because when you have prosecutors in a high profile case making a sentencing recommendation. And then their superiors overturning that within a day and all the prosecutors resolve, withdrawing from the case, that is pretty clearly not a smooth, functioning, well-communicating organization, even if everyone is. Oh, correct. So yeah. that, that's, that's why I'm saying that there's a lack of competence there at, at best. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, well, I don't know a lack of, of competence. I think the other way you could say is, is less than lack of. Um, uh, respecting your what your supervisor says isn't I mean, that part it, of competence? Isn't that isn't communicating communicating with your yeah. superiors on politically sensitive cases, knowing that there may be blowback? That would meet that would seem to me to be a part of being a competent prosecutor. Sure, and, and keep in mind though, two of the the line prosecutors were also part of the Mueller investigation. Mueller, yeah. um, you know, there there may also be other other you know the resistance at, at, at play here. Um, but, but I think you'd agree with me, look, that the, the, uh, role of the supervisor at, uh, justice who would either, um, green light these prosecutors making their recommendation or, or not. I mean, that's, that is an appropriate role for that, that person to play. And you can agree or disagree and say, look, uh, you know, I think the sentence should have been longer or shorter, whatever. Um, but that we agree that that's, that's a person who, needs to be consulted and make that call uh, rather than the um, the line uh, prosecutors. Right. Yeah, I, I would agree that certainly the line prosecutors are the people closest to the case. And so that gives them a perspective that 
the higher-ups may not have, which is why I think, generally speaking, they're the ones whose recommendations are largely adhered to. But in some some instances, there are other considerations, and sometimes the line prosecutors can be a little too close to the case. So absolutely. So that that said, I mean, I think, you know, that things were moving through the the proper channels until Trump sort of stuck his foot into it, right? and and again, I, I totally concur with Barr. I mean, this is kind of weird. You can agree with Barr and with Trump on the law. I would agree with Trump on the law that he is the head of the executive branch. And uh, ultimately, he probably can make uh, all those decisions. And the 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 uh, hedge against that is political, right? If, if you think that he's uh, letting off uh, people who are his friends and going too easy on him, well, your remedy's at the ballot box. Um, as it, as it should be. Um, wow. It sounds like you're, it, we'll get to this in a minute, but it sounds like yeah, I could, yeah, I can see why you love, well, William Barr because you're practically channeling the man. Well, yeah, we actually, we have the same glasses. Um, <laughs> I, I got mine before he was even appointed. You know, um, but, but, you know, you mentioned the one thing I can respect, or maybe that was sort of surprising to me, I guess I disagree with him on his views of executive authority, which we'll get to in a minute, but the words that he used, I mean, William Barr is a guy who's made his living with words. And so I think he chose them very carefully. And the fact that yes. he said that this makes it impossible for him and that he cannot do his job and that he that, that there's constant background commentary that undercuts me. He knew exactly what he was saying when he was saying that because he could have said it makes it more difficult. It yes. presents challenges, but he didn't do that. And I think and that is that is a, a I mean, that's a, a I wouldn't say a veiled threat. That's a threat, right? Well, it's a it's a threat in the sense that I will I I may resign if lock. you keep on doing yeah. this. Right. Yeah. Or you may have yeah, to cut, fire cut, me. Cut this out or I'm or I'm gone. Yeah. And uh, basically the president, I mean, the president's defenders make the make the correct. But 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 specious point that, well, the president has First Amendment rights. Well, yeah, he does. But that doesn't mean that you should exercise that it's wise to exercise those rights in such a way that legitimate that can legitimately call into question the integrity of the justice department which is exactly the point that attorney general barr is making right there was um some great uh it was a editorial in the well two in the wall street journal a couple of weeks ago one after the um uh, impeachment and the, the uh, uh acquittal and then the speech and and the thing of like here is trump uh, triumphant and they said, but, you know, Trump is a person who can't stand prosperity and we'll wait to see what happens. And then it was literally two days later and it said, well, here we are. <laughs> it was like that didn't take long, um, you yeah. know, that everything was going uh, really going swimmingly for him. Uh, and he, he sort of becomes his own worst enemy, uh, injecting himself into a situation which he didn't have to inject himself into. Right. Yeah. Uh, and for for no for no good reason uh, whatsoever. Uh, and again, there's there's the the thing of listen, if if he really uh, believed this, he had a couple options. Um, one is to uh, wait and see how the system plays out. Right. Um, you know, there may be some other. Um, uh, uh, you know, he didn't know what what's going on with Justice Department, which is, I don't know, kind of good, kind of bad. Uh, second, I I do think he has, he has the authority. Uh, to make his own recommendations, I uh, didn't do that. Or if he does, the the way to do it is to to pick up the phone rather than than tweet it publicly. 
Um, or, or a third, he can just wait it all sorts out and he's got a, the power to uh, pardon or commute sentences. So, you know, th- this was like a, a completely unforced error. And I, it's, so, it's baffling why, why he does this. So then you would think that it would be acceptable for any president saying to it in, in a situation where uh, a president's uh, associate or former associate is being, is being sentenced for uh, for a crime for multiple crimes that he's convicted of for for the president to behind the scenes call up the attorney general and say listen I want you to put in a uh, I want you to put in a shorter sentencing guideline and that the attorney general w- would have to in that in that case either do that or resign yeah hmm. I mean the president is the head of the executive branch okay um, I could think of, I could think of some exceptions right I could think of a couple exceptions that that would go to what we're talking like a Nixonian sort of thing where it's an attempt to cover up something of your own crime, something like that, that would be an obstruction of justice. Um, so but, so basically uh, the argument here is that as a matter of law, you're saying that the, the Justice Department has has no independence and the president's free to interfere as much as he feels he wants to. Well, you you can't you can't interfere with something that you're in charge of so the president can't obstruct justice only only to in cases that would involve a a claim against him i think but no i mean well think think with this with here's here's the we had this discussion years ago on on daca right and the the rationale between behind president obama's daca declaration was prosecutorial discretion that here is a a law, a statute. Here are a bunch of people who are plainly in violation of the statute, no question about it. Um, but I am, as the president, telling all of the um, prosecutors, uh, federal prosecutors, to exercise prosecutorial discretion and do not enforce this statute against these people. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And and that to to me that seemed to me that was that was a beyond sweeping. Uh, power of prosecutorial discretion. To me, the too. Of that yeah. is, the doctrine of that is, is you, it's individual cases here and there. You're not sure. just going to say, here's one law. I don't like it. We're not going to enforce it. But I would think this is a prosecutorial discretion uh, situation. Um, so and, then, okay, again, I, I don't know that that, yeah. ever, that ever actually happened. I'm right. saying hypothetically. I, I think I think Trump's right. I mean, another example would have been uh, uh, Eric Holder in the, um, uh, the Black Panthers uh, uh, with the the election uh, case, so which prosecutor Holder just said, no, we're not going to prosecute that. So, so then, um, why 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 do you like what what Barr said? Because Barr's whole point in in saying this was, I mean, he's focusing on the integrity and independence of the Justice Department, and right. you say, well, there is no integrity and independence; it's the president's thing to do with as he wants. So, why is what uh, Attorney General Barr said? at all laudable. I mean, he's the president's oh, I man. I think there's still, there's still integrity. There may or may not always be independence. Can um, you have one without the other? Yeah, I think so. Because here's the, the integrity portion goes to, um, how you, how you exercise your discretion, how you, how you run it. Now, if, if, um, uh, president Trump says, uh, and again, this is all hypothetical because let's, let's say that, um, he picks up the phone, uh, calls bar and says, uh, I want you to, to, you know, go easy on uh, uh, Stone here. I want the, the sentencing recommendation changed. Now, a couple things. One one variance that we should consider is also um, 
if he's saying, I want this changed within the guidelines. I think you should make a recommendation that's on the lower end of the guidelines as opposed to the right. highest. The end. president can't can't uh, break the law. He's not above the law. Exactly. Yeah. The president can't say, uh, I, I want the, you know, I want you to, you know, withdraw the conviction. I, I don't know. Again, that was that was the argument before. Well, let, let's pull back but, from this a little bit, because maybe I'm going to try to give you a little benefit of the doubt here. Maybe what you're saying is that while this is OK to do as a matter of law, you don't necessarily think it's a good practice for the president. Oh, exactly. To yeah. OK. Yeah. No, that's that's exactly right. I think that I'm saying the president has the authority to do it. Uh, but if he exercises that power um, in a in a way that. Uh, it brings disrepute to the Justice yeah. Department that makes it look bad. That's where you lose the integrity. You know, and and yeah. so he's got he's got the responsibility of of ensuring uh, public confidence in the Justice Department, uh, regardless of what he decisions he makes, um, to to show that those those decisions are uh, thoughtful, well considered, in the interest of justice, or at least arguably so. I mean, you can always you know, have a disagreement, but the public should at uh, least believe that the justice department is acting impartially, even if they aren't. Yes. Yes. No, and that's, 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 no, that's, the, those are the oh, words. That, no, those are the words that are in, um, um, you know, like the judicial canons, uh, in, in, uh, lawyer canons that, that you want to avoid the, um, yep. you the know, perception to me, to me, this just points back to the fact that, that, uh, the framers made a mistake in not having the attorney general be or in not having the attorney general be uh, a separate independently elected. I mean, I've talked about this before on the show. Forty three states do it that way. And I think that just makes so much more sense. I mean, that that ship has sailed, obviously. But if I could redesign the system, that is definitely one of the things I would do for exactly this reason. Well, let me put the question to you then the other way. If if the president isn't the head of the Justice Department, who is? The attorney, uh, the attorney general. Okay. Well, who's who's the who gets to appoint the attorney general? Well, see, that's that's what I'm saying. The problem is there's an inherent issue right. with this, and as long under as the system we have right now, yeah, as long as presidents act according to norms as opposed to pushing their authority to the outer limits of the law, it's not as much of a problem. But when you have an outlier like Donald Trump, all of a sudden this does become more of a problem. Well, and and when you say problem, I I, I guess I'd, I'd agree, but the the solution uh, is at the ballot box, and I think that's that's where I think a lot of times you and I come down with a, a disagreement. If yeah. I ever ask you, okay, who's in charge of the State Department? Well, right? yeah, and let's let's actually talk about that because I think that's a good conversation. Yeah, because he, here's here's my issue with with William Barr. At first, you know, well. The most common narrative on the left about Barr, I think, is that he's just carrying water for the president and he's basically abandoned whatever principles he might have to support Donald Trump. Now, I thought about this. And, of course, my initial reaction to Barr when he was nominated was here's a guy with a strong establishment Republican track record and also a good record for integrity. And so I thought, well, let me let me stick with that and think about. Not so much what Barr has done in light of the beginning assumption that he's corrupt or, or supporting corruption, but try to, trying to go back to what I think his first principles are. And so what I did was I found the speech that he made to the Federalist Society back in November on executive power. And in that speech, I think he got a lot of very important things disastrously wrong, but it makes his actions as attorney general make sense without invoking this idea that he's corrupt. 
And uh, because basically what Barr believes is in and he he laughs it off essentially in the unitary executive. And that's kind of the idea that you're pushing, Jay, is that the president is fully and thoroughly in charge and Barr sees an executive that's beset on all sides by legislative and judicial encroachment. And that executive privilege and executive power is incredibly sweeping. And that even that the courts don't really have any right to intervene in executive legislative conflicts because he seems to think like you do that, well, this can be handled by compromise through the political process, through the ballot box, essentially. And that seems to me both both Barr's view and your view. Is that right? I'm I'm happy to be on the same page with uh, Bill Barr and the Federalist Society. Yeah, and here's my problem with that. I agree with him that there's been more what he calls resistance. Uh, and he, I mean, he might use that with a capital R, I don't know, right. to President Trump from congressional Democrats and from the courts. But what he doesn't take into consideration, at least in this Federal Society speech, is the nature of what the president is doing. So, for instance, if a president nominates more extreme and unqualified people, sometimes people who his senators in his own party say, um, no, we can't go there. And if a president regularly abuses his power and if he refuses to cooperate at all with legitimate congressional investigations, well, of course, there's going to be more resistance. And just saying, well, let the political process handle it is basically saying, well, let a let a potentially allegedly corrupt president be corrupt until there can be another election. And that that I think is just untenable. Well, there, there's, there is the impeachment remedy in extreme situations. Well, there, there, um, well, but, well, again, well, the idea that the courts have no role hard, in this. Hard, a hard bar to get over, intentionally so, because I think the founders intended exactly that, that, look, um, there ought to be accountability, uh, and the best way to do that is through elections. Well, and I'm certainly, sure. what, I, I what would, would agree. You, what would you be, and what, I guess, what would be your remedy? No, I would agree that if elections I would agree that elections are the best way, but I disagree with the unitary executive theory and I I completely agree that the courts do have a role in adjudicating disputes between the legislative and executive branches. Now, certainly mm-hmm. I think in some instances the courts can abuse their power and I think that Barr actually makes a reasonable point about District court judges issuing nationwide injunctions, for instance. I've been convinced on that issue. But but the idea that and, and this goes to his larger idea that and he actually says this, that the framers were all for a really strong executive and that if they could see us now, they would feel like the executive is the one branch that right now really worked out the way they wanted it to. I think that's ludicrous. I, I, it's a, that seems to me to be a thorough misreading of the framers and of history. Oh, I think I think he hits the nail on the head, um, but I'll get that back to that in a second. What I want to make the point of is when we talk about unitary executive, uh, what I mean, and, and I think what, what Barr means, is that the president is is controls the executive branch. I mean, the, so much of what's going on here, what's going on uh, exactly in this this controversy? I mean, to the extent it's even a controversy, uh, is whether it's not whether the uh, president can encroach on the uh, uh, powers of Congress or the courts. It's whether the president can encroach upon the powers of the executive branch. Um, you know, is is he actually in charge or is someone else in charge? And I think that's that's the issue. If you have the the unitary executive. That means he is in charge of the entire executive branch, 
uh, not uh, civil service, not appointed uh, bureaucrats, not um, line prosecutors. It's at the end of the day, the president's uh, 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 the one with the authority uh, over everything that happened in the executive, and and it's on him, rightly or wrongly. And and you know, so if you don't like it, you you vote him out. And the reason for that is that it, it lends accountability uh, to an otherwise unaccountable executive. If you have um, uh, an executive branch that is is governed by uh, uh, career civil servants and nothing wrong with career career civil servants. Uh, some of my best friends are career civil servants. Um, that's that's great, and they bring a lot of expertise, uh, a lot of knowledge, and all that. But they don't bring accountability, and and that's what we have in our system. Um, is that people should be able to vote and change course if they don't like uh, the way things are being uh, handled. And, and and again, the the people may be right or may be wrong, uh, but I think democracy doesn't. It's not a it's not a mechanism for reaching uh, the best uh, outcome, but it's it's the the method for reaching an outcome that that has legitimacy to it. And I think that's if you have a president who who can't control, uh, or is not in control of his own uh, executive branch, then I'm I'm not sure why why are we in why are we uh, electing presidents. Well, I mean, I, I think that's a, I think that's a, a sort of a false uh, a false division. This this idea that kind of all or nothing thinking: either the president is completely in charge of everything in the executive branch, or the president's powers are being unfairly and unconstitutionally encroached upon. I mean, the Supreme Court has rejected that argument uh, multiple times, calling it this archaic division into three airtight departments of government. And and I agree with the court on this. That this idea that 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 the system was designed to make the president completely not just in charge, but utterly unassailable in anything involving the executive branch. I think that that does not comport with what the framers had in mind or with a, with a reasonable reading of, of the, uh, the framers intent in the in writing article one and article two. Oh no, it's completely assailable. Um, in, you don't in term, seem to but, think it is except through elections or impeachment or nor through legislation, right? Uh, the Senate uh, recently passed a, a you know, a new war powers type resolution uh, as to Iran. Now, that's that's, you know, been a subject for constitutional debate, war powers resolution for forever. Sure. But there you have a situation where you have Congress stepping up and acting uh, affirmatively say, to say, Mr. President, here is what we are going to allow and here's what we are not going to allow. Well, well um, yeah, but but then I think that's I think that's different. That's much sure. different than the president telling uh, the, you know, some other department of his executive branch uh, what to do. But, but like, I guess saying, I mean, but, my question to you is what if, again, say, what parts of the executive branch doesn't the president control? Well, no, I, I'm saying that I'm saying I'm not saying that the president doesn't control the executive branch. What I'm saying is, especially in instances where there are allegations, reasonable allegations that the president is abusing his powers and failing to faithfully execute the laws, Congress has a legitimate role to investigate and oversee that. And sure. if the president simply says, I'm not going to cooperate with that oversight one whit, and I'm going to instruct everyone not to. And by the way, the courts are not allowed to intervene to compel me to 
comply with this and you're just going to have to wait till the next election. And actually, none of this will ever come out because it's all under seal of executive privilege. Well, I I thoroughly and utterly reject that that uh, construction. Yeah. Well, I don't think anybody's I don't think anybody's arguing for that. It sounds like you are. And and Donald Trump is. No, 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 no. But, you know, in terms of executive privilege, um, the courts have said, yes, there is an executive privilege. Uh, and yes, there are limits to it. Um, and quite honestly, you know, in the last impeachment case, we didn't get to that point because the, the Democrats decided not to pursue that, that route. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, again, I think we're, we're almost talking past our, each other that the, the present, uh, crisis, if you like, again, I don't see, um, even assuming that there was a conspiracy that the president was going to call Barr and say, could you uh, put in a lesser recommendation? Um, or I order you to put in a, 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 a lower uh, recommendation. Um, how that's that's any kind of a constitutional issue. No, I think it could be yeah. a political issue. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I, I agree with you as a matter of law that the president can certainly do that. And then uh, we, one would expect a, a, an attorney general with any integrity if he felt that that was something he could not do in good conscience, that he or she would, would resign Sure. at that point. So sure. Yeah. I mean, in that sense, we're not actually talking past and, each and, other. And, and keep in mind also what that is, that's the prosecutor's sentencing recommendation, which the court is yeah. free to ignore entirely if it wants. Uh, or, or, you know, take it actually to the letter, whatever. Um, so there's no, there's no inner branch, uh, uh, bullying going on. Um, this is the way it happens in criminal cases every day. The, the prosecutor comes in and says, we're going to recommend a, a sentence at, at this level. Um, defense uh, counsel will typically say, judge, we'd rather have a lighter sentence. Um, you know, sure. that's sort of, that's, that's really kind of the way that the system works every single day. Uh, and the court makes the decision, and there's no um, there's no impropriety one one way or the other. So I, I guess that's going back to to Barr and uh, you know where where we started. Um, that's why I think uh, he's he's 100 percent on. He looked at a recommendation. Uh, Justice Department lower lower than him looked at uh, the recommendation and said, "Look, we think this is too high. Uh, go back with a." Uh, and again, it, it was not a. We think he ought to be uh, let go on his own recognizance, right? It was like a reducing it to, uh, I think, four or five years. Three or four, something like that, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you're still sending a guy to prison uh, for several years for a non, non-violent crime, um, which is what liberals are always talking about, that, that we ought not to clock up our, our prisons with nonviolent offenders. Well, that's um, it's unfair, but go ahead. <laughs> that's that's not, not Trump people, though. We don't mean uh, Trump supporters. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's okay. So, I mean, my, my, my point is the system was working until Trump, uh, did this, uh, through the gasoline on the fire to, um, create sort of this, uh, I don't know, a straw man kind of thing that, that there's, there's something inherently corrupt if, if he, he does make it. And so again, this is, this is largely a hypothetical discussion, I think. Yeah. Well, I think where I come down here in the end is that I don't necessarily I don't necessarily think that there's anything that uh, William Barr is doing that's corrupt, but I think his view of executive power is just is very very wrong, and and you don't, and like you said, that's where we differ on this one. Well, 
let me just because um, I want to explore just a little bit bit more because we're going deeper on this. Um, in my my sense, and again, this is taken with the historical background. The, the big thing that was missing in the Articles of Confederation that needed fixed uh, was that there was not an executive, um, and so the the founders put that in, and they hedged it obviously with this this balance of powers between the legislative uh, and the judicial, which again the judicial has uh, branch has asserted more powers than I think the framers would have anticipated. Um, and to some extent, the legislature has has uh, uh, abandoned a lot of the powers that it has. And I think Barr made that point uh, in his speech, is that when the legislature gets out of the business of actually legislating and just turns things over to uh, executive agencies, you you get into this situation where we, we have here, where the only business left for Congress to do is to investigate the executive. Um, so I, this speech was made before even the real investigations even got rolling. Um, I mean, what, I, I guess that's, that's where I don't think, um, you and I are that, that far apart. Uh, I'm not, I'm not arguing for, you know, what used to be called the imperial presidency. Um, cause I think we, we don't have that anymore. Um, wow. I totally disagree with you there. I think, uh, yeah. So I guess we, we, where we agree is that we both agree that Congress has, uh, uh, has abrogated a lot of its, given away a lot of its authority or doesn't exercise. It has, it can't really give it away in the constitutional right. scheme of things. Right. But where we disagree is you believe it, you believe that uh, in a much stronger president than I do. And you believe that that view is much more consistent with the intent of the framers in the constitution than I do. Yeah. What, what is it that you, you think the president uh, should not be able to do that he's doing now, I guess. I, I, That's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, I believe that in instances, particularly in instances where the where the president is uh, is in a situation where he may not be faithfully executing the laws, that that Congress has a right and, in fact, an obligation to challenge him on that, and the courts have a right and, in fact, an obligation to prevent or to to call out the president and to instruct him to faithfully execute the laws because that is part of his that is that is why the president is you know there in the first place and so, yeah, so if he doesn't so it, do so that this, if he doesn't do that the only remedies are not i reject the idea that the only remedies are impeachment or or reelection i believe that there are there are other remedies through the courts what are they they are, again, the courts issuing injunctions, ruling things that the executive does unconstitutional. And, and, and so there you go. And it seems so, like. So, but, so in this case, in Roger Stone, I mean, would your position be that the courts could instruct the president that he could not overrule? No, not at all. I'm not talking line... about this instance. No, I'm just oh. talking about more generally. Now, okay. I, think, I think this specific instance suggests that we have maybe come to a point in our polarization where it would be better if we had an independent attorney general. Of course, we don't have that. Uh, and and so, so, no, I don't see anything illegal in what the president, uh, president did. And I think a lot of things that Donald Trump does aren't illegal. They're just tawdry and wrong and unethical. Okay. All right. So before we move on, we'd like to thank our sponsor for today, Empower. You know, unless you're, I don't know, Mike Bloomberg, you could use some extra money. And that's why I'm a big fan of Empower. 
It could help you save a bunch of money so you can move from uh, ramen noodles to prime rib or really good tofu if you're a vegan like me, I guess. You know, you just put in your weekly savings target, Empower studies your income and spending, and automatically moves the right amount of money into your savings account where you're going to be less likely to spend it. They've also got budgeting for people who hate budgeting, everyone in other words, with reports that have actionable spending insights and personally tailored smart savings recommendations. Empower can even negotiate on your behalf to lower your bills. They also give you personalized human coaching for any financial questions you might have and high interest FDIC insured checking with no minimums. So if you want to save big this year, Download Empower, that's E-M-P-O-W-E-R, in the App Store or Play Store. I did, and so have over 650,000 other people. And Politics Guys listeners, you get $5 when you use offer code POLITICSGUYS and reach your savings goal. Visit empower.me slash politicsguys for more details. Okay, Jay, so moving on, let's talk a little bit about elections. Um, All right. Now, of course, New Hampshire had. I a, like elections. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, clearly they're they're the big remedy yeah. for everything. <laughs> anyway, yeah. so New Hampshire had its presidential primary this weekend. Unlike Iowa's contest, it came off without incident. Bernie Sanders won the popular vote, but Pete Buttigieg ended up right behind him, earning the same number of delegates. That's nine. Amy Klobuchar exceeded expectations, finishing third and winning six delegates, while. Both Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden underperformed, finishing fourth and fifth, respectively, with neither winning any delegates. So, Jay, before we get into the whole issue, which I definitely want to, of Bernie Sanders and Democratic Socialism, what's your take on the, the New Hampshire results and the state of the Democratic race? I think I think uh, Biden should look into going into the uh, family natural gas business um, <laughs> uh, with his son. <laughs> I think that might be the, the better route at this point. Um, uh, I, I think uh, one the Sanders win was not surprising, right? I think that's something we predicted. Everybody predicted for a while. Uh, the fact that it wasn't bigger and that there was the Buttigieg Klobuchar um, uh, sort of boomlet. Yeah. Uh, was was surprising uh, to me. The Biden piece was not surprising. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna pat myself on the back because uh, I said this. I think probably six months ago, uh, the Democrats can have impeachment or they can have Joe Biden as their candidate. They can't have both, and and uh, I think this is this kind of plays into that. Um, now, uh, so the, the the big question to me is is, is okay. What did uh, Buttigieg and Klobuchar do right? Now, the, the thing that that's a little weird is, is a lot of people say, well, it was, it was the debate performances, um, mm. which really people weren't watching or you didn't think people were watching. Yeah. Uh, but maybe people in New Hampshire were. Um, so I, I think that's uh, that's kind of uh, kind of fascinating. Um, the downside is can Klobuchar or not downside? Um, I guess downside for, for me, if you're thinking of the sort of rational Democrats. Um, is that Buttigieg and Klobuchar, uh, I don't know that they can exist in the same lane, right? Um, sooner or later, one of them has to go. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, I think, I think you know, at this point, Sanders is going to have the, the far left progressive vote locked up. Um, well, we'll see, yeah, yeah. And, and Biden and Biden is gone. Now, the, the, the thing we don't know about, obviously, is Bloomberg because he hasn't been in the game yet. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, and that's the thing, Jay. I, I mean, well, a couple of things. 
you know that I hate election reporting uh, for a lot of reasons. There's a right. lot to hate. But first off, the, the reports that Bernie won, even though he got the same number of delegates as Pete, it's kind of like saying that Hillary Clinton won the 2016 election, right? right? I mean, Bernie tied at best. Yeah, because it's not about getting the most votes. It's about getting the most delegates. And there are a lot of people, uh, Bernie supporters especially, say, oh, the media just kind of underreported the fact that Bernie won. Well, he underperformed in the sense that he's a neighboring state senator and that sort of thing. Right. But okay, and, he, and I think he under he underperformed from uh, last time he ran in yeah. New Hampshire. Yeah, exactly. Albeit that was a, that was a different race. There weren't very different a spread out yeah. field, but but yeah. another reason, and this is a bigger reason I hate election reporting, is that there's so much over speculation because at this point. There have been 65 delegates awarded out of 1,990 you need to get the nomination. It's 3.3%. So if this is a football game, there's like 13 minutes to go in the first quarter. If it's a baseball game, it's like halfway through the first inning, you know? So right. sure, we can see some trends. Absolutely. I'm not questioning that. But especially in this race with, I, I would say, six potentially viable candidates and Bloomberg's massive spending he's being one of those viable camps it's way right. too early for anyone to either freak out or to cheer and so right now we have south oh, Carolina. I, I i would disagree i would think uh if you're elizabeth warren or uh joe biden you ought to be freaking out freaking out i think is a little strong but not it's definitely not joe biden maybe warren because south carolina is coming up and they have 54 delegates that's nearly as that's nearly as big as iowa and new hampshire combined now, if Joe Biden goes into South Carolina and doesn't do well, where it's kind of seen in his his firewall because of minority support, well, that's different. Nevada coming up even before that has 36 delegates. There's not a ton of polling there, but the last polling I checked, Biden is ahead in both South Carolina and Nevada. So let's say Joe Biden wins both of those states. All of a sudden, the narrative changes again. And then Super Tuesday and the narrative changes again. So People just need to take a friggin' breath already. That's how I feel anyway. So that's my thing about election reporting. But the bigger issue, the deeper issue that I wanted to talk about with you, Jay, is Bernie Sanders. You know, I think it's fair to say that at this point, the idea of a Sanders presidency has gone from maybe unlikely at one point to entirely plausible at this point. We can see a path to that. You know, even though it's early, he's leading in the national polls. He's trending up. The betting markets have him as the Democrat to beat right now. And so I thought maybe instead of more horse race type stuff, which I think everyone has had more than enough of, maybe we could take a look at Bernie Sanders. Like, first off, what a best case scenario looks like for him and what the real world consequences of a Democratic Socialist president would be. So are you up for that? I'm up for it. Okay, so here's my best case scenario. You, you tell me how you think about this. But so he becomes president. He wins the election. Uh, he gets a House and a Senate majority, and he convinces Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to get his Democratic caucus to end the legislative filibuster. And Schumer has previously said that nothing's off the table in response to questions he had about ending the filibuster. So. That to me in 2020, at least, is the best case scenario for Bernie Sanders. Would, would you agree electorally? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I think you'd probably also agree, right, that 
just like for all presidencies, the critical period is always the first like 18 months. That's that's when you have your window. I mean, Donald Trump right. got the big tax your cut. Height, height of, of yeah political power. Exactly. Yeah. Before the midterms. And so during that period, we know from history that you can get through one or maybe two big things. But more than that, just not happening. And what would they be in the Sanders presidency? Well, Bernie has already promised that within a week of being elected, he would send a, Medi- a Medicare for all bill to Congress. So within his first week as president, not within being elected, within his first week as president, right? So Medicare for all would be there. What else? Well, maybe a, a free a free college, student loan, debt forgiveness would be something, right? So it seems to me that even with Democratic majorities, Medicare for all doesn't come anywhere close to passing. Neither does free college for everyone, but I think you can make a case that major student loan debt forgiveness or restructuring, along with maybe a big federal increase in uh, educational aid, specifically Pell Grants, could possibly pass. And we could maybe even see uh, a big expansion of the PSLF, that public service loan forgiveness program, and maybe even something where you give like free tuition at public public universities to say, I don't know, honorably discharge veterans or something like that to kind of bring in that component of it. So, but to me, that's about all you get legislatively. What do you think? Is that, is that pretty much your take I on that? I, I don't know. I mean, because here's the thing. I mean, uh, theoretically, he would already have the votes for a uh, Medicare for all in the House, mm, mm. right? I think. No, I think well, in the got, House, maybe, enough, but not in the Senate. House people lined up saying that they would vote for some sort of Medicare for all. No, I, I don't know that he's got that in the Senate. But No, no, not even close. Not even close. And I don't think so. It's one thing to say that. And it's another thing when it actually comes down to the voting and the massive lobbying from the healthcare industry. No, there's 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 well, no and, way. and the message that um, if you like your plan uh, too bad, we're we're outlawing it. Yeah, because that, that's <laughs> be clear. That's part of that's part of Bernie Sanders' plan is to outlaw yeah. private insurance. That's the it's the most uh, either progressive or radical, depending on what word you want to use, of those plans. So, but. You know, that being said, of course, he could do certain things through executive orders. Obviously, he reversed a lot of pretty much everything that Donald Trump has done, just like Donald Trump, you know, essentially tried to do that with Barack Obama. He might have some problems uh, the in court the courts. Stopped him, though. I think exactly. Would, I think the courts, think the courts would stop uh, Bernie from undoing uh, Trump uh, executive orders. I think, yeah, absolutely. So, no, I think they would not. Well, I think, but, I think well, well, given the fact that the courts are a lot more Trump. Dominated now, and he still well, has another I suppose, year. I suppose that's true. Yeah, I suppose that's true. absolutely. But, but the but the idea is that again, this goes back. And this is a different conversation to nationwide injunctions and and uh, you know judge shopping and so forth. You can find the right judge yep. in the right place. Absolutely. So. so I think I think Bernie Sanders would be a deeply frustrated guy. But more generally, okay, let's say to me the best case scenario is I think the idea of normalizing. Democratic socialism is a good thing because even if Bernie Sanders doesn't get a whole lot done, even if he's a deeply frustrated guy, the idea that people can actually start thinking seriously about democratic socialism as a reasonable way to do things, I think that's a really good and healthy kind of thing because that's what I want. Yeah, go ahead. I was okay, let's let's I mean define our terms here okay. what we talk about when we mean democratic socialism. Okay, yeah. that kind of means different things to different people. And and 
you know, to me, there's there's sometimes the, the Bernie Sanders and the folks who are proponents of democratic socialism say it's it's just like regular democracy um, with all kinds of really good stuff for everybody. Well, no, and that, that's obviously far too broad. But here's here's how I see it. OK, and this is based on what I think democratic socialists of America have to say as well. They don't believe in government ownership of everything, but they do believe in more stakeholder input in decisions. And so we're talking about things like uh, co-ops, worker, uh, automatic worker or labor positions on corporate boards, removing barriers to union organizing. So more democracy in the workplace, basically. And they absolutely believe in constraining what I think is fair to call the, the massive power of the rich and big business over our politics and over our lives. And yeah, that means considerably more regulation. And also, I would say, they might not say this, but I'll say it, it means more near-term costs. But I would argue with longer-term gains, because the people with the most with the most economic power won't be allowed to manipulate to the same extent they are the political system for present gains for themselves at the cost of the long-term health of the country. And so that gets into inequality. And certainly there would be much more progressive taxation. They care deeply about crony capitalism that reduces competition, innovation, and economic growth. And they also believe in the dignity of work and the goal to ensure that everyone's work is meaningful or as meaningful as possible and that it provides a living living wage. And by that definition, I'm essentially a democratic socialist, though temperamentally, as you know, Jay, I'm a Burkean, which means that instead of kind of huge radical change, whenever possible, I want to proceed with smaller scale experiments to see how a lot of these theories actually play out in practice and then build on that foundation. Now, in some areas, you can't do that, of course, but whenever it's feasible, I think that's the way to go. So that that's kind of my definition and my position on that. Well, but th- that sort of fits in with with what I just said. It sounds like, well, it's just like our our regular democracy, only with a lot of real good stuff, with full employment for everyone and no, satisfactory well, no, jobs, not full and employment. everyone's happy. No, 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 no. And, I think and, that's and, that, that. I think that's unfair. I'm I'm not saying that it guarantees these goals. I'm saying it sets up different procedures that will that will more naturally bring us to uh, a more equitable, just, and actually a more uh, competitive society, in fact. Okay. Did the democratic socialists, and this is an unfair question, um, but, <laughs> but I'll ask it anyway. Did the democratic socialists believe that the, the fix was in and the system was rigged uh, in 2009? In- I mean, after President Obama uh, uh, was was elected and, and he had a majority in the House, um, well, okay, yeah, I see majority what you're in both houses. Let's, I mean, uh, that's that's the thing. It's sort of the, the the process is broken. The system is broken, desperately broken. Yeah. Um. But but it was okay a couple of years ago. No, so, no, I, mean, I, I disagree. I mean, if there's great no, entrenched wealth, not at all, not at all. Everything. No, you're entirely wrong on that because what democratic socialists would tell you is that they were deeply disappointed in the Obama administration's response to the financial crisis and the fact that. Barack Obama chose for his top financial team the same cast of characters who basically created the financial crisis demonstrates how deeply broken the system is. So, no, democratic socialists would absolutely say that the that the Obama administration completely blew it and that Dodd-Frank was essentially a, a, a Band-Aid at best. So, no, this isn't – that's why I think democratic socialism is so powerful and, and potentially useful is because it gets, it gets to the point that our basic structures – 
are broken. And unless we fix, unless we alter these structures, we're going to keep on getting the same corrupt outcomes. And I agree. Well, like which which structures uh, specifically? Well, basically, I mean, what it all boils down to is the the ability of the uh, of the wealthy to uh, unduly influence our political system. Okay. Now, well, how how is that? Now we're we're talking through campaign contributions. I, I I would expect, right? Well, not just campaign contributions through lobbying, through independent contributions. So so yeah. Okay. Well, what what would uh, what would the democratic socialists do about that? Well, I, I can't I can't speak specifically to planks. In, in in the platform, in a, you know, in a platform. Well, generally, I'm just saying generally. What, but generally, how, how, they would call for something with, more consistent with, with that sort of approach would be a call for, for instance, public financing of elections. Okay. And, and, and much more strict limits on lobbying, for instance. There it is. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I said there there would be regulations. The whole the whole idea here is to level the playing field so regular people that they're never going to have as much voice as the rich and powerful. But the idea is to give them at least a greater uh, 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 to the point where it's not just a ridiculous uh, dis disequilibrium. Okay. I mean, but what what restrictions on lobbying could be passed? Right. That's a First Amendment guarantee, the right to seek redress from your government. Well, absolutely. And so it's well, it's one thing to have the right to petition and seek redress, but there already are plenty of limits on lobbying. But the type of limits that we could have or maybe more broadly on on influence peddling would be much stricter revolving door rules, for instance. And much stricter enforcement of these rules, for instance, or an independent or a quasi-independent authority to to police these rules. Because right now, basically, we have the almost thoroughly ineffective by design Federal Election Commission to, you know, enforce a lot of this stuff with elections. And Congress isn't really interested in enforcing restrictions on lobbying and influence peddling because, of course, what's the most popular job for ex-members of Congress? Well, lobbying Congress at quite a salary premium. Sure. The lobbying door works for D.C., works for that yeah. whole corrupt, crony capitalist, ooh, little alliteration there, a system. And so Demo Democratic Socialists would say we have to we have to break up the structures that lead to crony capitalism. And I would I would think that there are that there's some agreement actually on the libertarian on the libertarian right about that. No, I, I I'm, I'm a, as against crony capitalism as anybody. Um but my, my, my point that I'm trying to get to, I mean, sort of Socratically here, is that um, democratic socialism would necessarily entail uh, the, the, the curtailment of a lot of liberties that people now enjoy and take for granted. Well, the curtailment of a lot of liberties that rich and powerful people use to manipulate yes. the system. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. You cannot change a system under which the rich and powerful are manipulating the system for their own ends without taking away some power from the rich and powerful. Yeah, that's, that's pretty well, no, much I'm, that's I'm how it works. Away some power. I'm, I'm talking about taking away liberties, taking away rights. I mean, if you're going to say that... No one's taking um, away rights. You may, you may no longer lobby uh, Congress. No, that's not, I mean, what, that's not what anyone's on. saying. That's not what anyone's okay. saying. Uh, no one's calling for, at least I'm not calling for, a repeal of the First Amendment or anything like that. The First Amendment still stands. And okay. so... Well, Good to hear. Yeah. And so under, you know, under my understanding of democratic socialism, people would absolutely be free to do that. Just there would be instead of maybe in, another way of looking at it is, is 
there could perhaps be more of an emphasis on helping to increase the power of regular people as opposed to restricting liberties of people who already have the power. Okay. Got it. So power to the people is what I'm saying. I, I, I hear something. you. And that's what I think that's um, what the Democratic Socialists are saying. That's what Bernie Sanders is saying. And and like I said, this is why and you remember, Jay, we've been doing this show for a long time now. But in 2016, you remember I would I would go on these tangents. I would get I would get swept up in the excitement and get on that Bernie bandwagon and get just fired up. But yet, while I, I so embrace his vision of the future. My problem is that's when my Berkey inside comes out and I say, but yeah, can we do it sort of slowly and incrementally? And that's where that kind of, that's where I kind of part company. I think I, I want a, I want an incremental revolution. And I, that's, that's not, not a big, not a big camp, you know, the incremental revolutionist. Right. So what do we not, what do we want? Incremental change. Yeah. <laughs> when do we want it? Soonish. At some point. Yeah. <laughs> basically, you know, before you, you know, so yeah, but, but essentially so, yeah. So, so I guess, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily, well, maybe you would, I don't know. Would you necessarily disagree with the, with the outcome that at least the diversion of democratic socialism that I sketch out sees? That, that, that would, that uh, Sanders would not be able to accomplish uh, sort of a whole Medicare, Medicaid for all, Green New Deal, uh, free college for everyone, um, uh, free ponies for everybody um, kind of thing within his, his presidency. I, I, as a practical matter, yeah, I'd agree with that. And, and then more theoretically, would you agree with sort of the general aims, at least of democratic socialism, as I sketch them out here? Um, that's not that, now. That's not committing you to be a democratic socialist. Understand? I'm just saying right, exactly. that you know. So, would you agree that there are significant inequalities in the system, and that the and that the wealthy and powerful have an outsized voice in our politics? Sure, sure they do. Okay. Um, but hasn't it always been so? I think and it's always been so. The question is: is as government becomes more powerful then that outsized voice becomes more powerful. So back there in- There you go. There you go. See, that's, that's exactly the, the, I think the, the conservative response is the, the, the way to cure this, this inequality is not to uh, disempower, I guess, the rich and powerful, but, but to limit government, right? That's, if the rich and powerful are using government as the tool to accomplish their nefarious ends, um, the better the better route is to start limiting uh, the power of government. And I've I've made this argument a number of times. If you want to get money out of politics, uh, get get politics out of money. Yeah, and and I think that's a that is a completely logical argument, and I think it would work that way. But my that the counter argument from the left, of course, is that government can be a massive force for good and needs to act in a lot of ways that it didn't in the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries. And so therefore, as a practical matter and as a matter of just, I guess you could even say ethics, that government must be more involved. And that's where you and I would part company. And that's why you're a conservative and I'm a liberal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. All right. Well, on, I, I'm sure I am sure we will come back to various forms of this in the future. But for right now, that does it for today's show, but if you would like a second 
full-length Politics Guys episode this week and every week. Remember, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters also get ad-free versions as well as other good stuff. You can get the details and become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash politicsguys. And again, if you can't afford to become a supporter, just email me at mikeatpoliticsguys.com and I will get you full access to that second weekly episode. And you know, maybe being a monthly supporter is too much of a commitment, but every once in a while you'd like to help us out, you know, you can do that too through PayPal. You'll find the link on our website, politicsguys.com. We'd also appreciate it if you could subscribe to the show, leave ratings and reviews, and especially if you could share your favorite episodes on social media or email. If you want to get in touch with us, mail at politicsguys.com. There's our bipartisan politics subreddit where we just have some great discussions. The link is in the show notes, so you can search for bipartisan politics on Reddit. We've also got a Facebook page where we post stuff, facebook.com slash politicsguys page, and we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, and Daniel Toe. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.